I hear from families all the time that sometimes the school reinforces that notion that it's the parents' fault and that they should be able to do something about it. And each child is unique and there are things going on in that environment that are stressors to children. They've rarely, in all my years of doing this, I will say 99.9% .9 of the time, something is happening in that environment that's triggering the child. I'm Tracy Spencer Walsh, and this is the It's Special podcast, a podcast for you to overhear my conversations with top professionals in the world of special needs and law and civil rights. We are curating information about special children's rights and distilling it into bite-sized pieces for all to enjoy. Well, today we have Denise Marshall. Denise is the Chief Executive Officer of the Council of Parent Attorneys and Advocates. Did I get it right? Yes, you did. Sometimes Very good. I switch the A's, <laughs> which is a national organization. And I'm so happy you're here today, Denise. Thank you so much for coming. Oh, sure. Thank you for inviting me, Tracy. It's a pleasure. And it's my pleasure to speak with you. It's been far too long that you and I have been in person talking with one another. That's right. So I'm excited to have this opportunity. Denise, why don't we start with what COPA is? Mm -hmm. And then I'd like to know your educational and professional background leading into COPA. Okay, great. Yeah, COPA is an amazing national network that is comprised of parents and other family members, attorneys, advocates, related professionals, all working together to really make sure that students with disabilities' rights are protected and also that they have what they need to succeed in school. So we come from all different states and a couple of the territories. We come from rural areas, you know, in the middle of the city, everywhere in between. But what really re unites us is the belief that every child can learn and the conviction to do what it takes to make sure they have what they need to learn. And so we share strategies with each other. We inform each other about latest resources or new interpretations of the law that may help. We inform each other about policy changes across the country that could be replicated in other states so that we can, again, continue to advance what's available to students and, you know, allow parents to continue their quest for what their child needs and hopefully in a little bit easier way or, or more successful way because we know that a lot of parents are still struggling with trying to get what their child needs. So I imagine as a national organization, the resources that parents have available to them is vast depending on where you are in the country. Can you speak to that a little bit? Yes, definitely. I mean, certainly in areas that are more populated, there are there seem to be anyways more resources not only available in the way of services such as speech and language or behavioral services or other things that a student may need but also there seems to be more opportunities for parents to connect with each other and to go to trainings or you know receive information you know, I think now we're in the digital age, and that's one of the things that's interesting, I think, about COPA is we're about 21, 
22 years old. And so we've kind of grown up with the digital age in that sense. So now we have a really robust way for members to talk with each other and share resources and provide information where, you know, a lot of times, especially families or even practitioners, attorneys or advocates that are in more rural areas or less densely populated, felt alone in this work. And it can be hard work. You know, you really have to fight against a system and a bureaucracy a lot of times. And oh, I know that well. <laughs> yeah, I know you do. <laughs> and some districts and their personnel are really good at convincing parents that they're asking for things that are too much or that they're somehow misinterpreting a law or a policy or that there is a policy when, in fact, there isn't. So, you know, just just sometimes that basic being able to have someone else on your side, to feel like you're not alone, I think really helps people keep moving forward. And how would people get involved with COPA? What's the process for anybody listening who says, wow, that's a great organization. I never heard of that before. How can I be part of it? Yeah, we have our website, which is just www.copaa.org. And there's a join us page and we welcome folks. There's different categories of whether you're a family or a professional or a related professional. But we also have a scholarship option. And if membership, you know, we don't want anyone to not be able to join if it's financially would be a burden to them. So it's all on the join us page. Well, that's great. I'm a big lover of COPA and COPA has been very supportive, certainly of my work over the years. Sometimes we've had some federal court cases where we've needed an amicus brief. And for anybody listening who doesn't know what that is, an amicus brief is a friend of the court brief, which an organization can file on behalf of the parent's cause to speak to a particularly important or nationally impacted issue. Correct? Is that Absolutely. Yes. Many times when a district loses, let's say, to a family, in when they've gone to due process, the district may appeal up to the federal court, as you said. And so the federal court is going to look at that issue and make a ruling that can impact not only that family, but families all across the country Sometimes and sometimes, you know, in a particular circuit, I think New York is in the second circuit. Am I right? right. And what that means is that every state belongs to one of the 13 circuit courts of appeals. So we're very, yeah, we have an, an incredibly busy and knowledgeable amicus committee, and they file 15, sometimes 20 of those kinds of briefs every year, again, to try to shape the body of law for families and for the practitioners, the attorneys, the advocates that support them to, you know, uphold student and, and family rights. And some circuits across the country have understood the components of the law and the body of case law better than others. So some, you know, sometimes are right now we've been very active in the Fifth Circuit, which encompasses Texas and a few other states, Louisiana, I believe. I'm not 
always perfect with my memory on the circuits, but they really have to have had some issues. And the amicus brief helps remind the judges what the law is or what cases, important cases, or perhaps what the research has said. So hopefully a ruling that we think is a correct interpretation of the law comes down. Probably not just a reminder, but also that it's not just this family that's going to be impacted by uh, a decision, but it's going to be impactful for scores of families, whether it's in a particular circuit or nationwide. Because also, as I'm sure you know, one circuit's ruling is not controlling in another circuit, but it's persuasive, especially if that issue has not been decided in another circuit. So getting the information to a federal court that is independent of the two parties who are before the court, I think often it's helpful and instructive to the court. And I think the COPA amicus briefs have been well-received Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And when you said the word, not only reminder, it it made me realize that I should also clarify that for some circuits, it's really an education to read the briefs because they haven't dealt with an issue like this or they may not be familiar with the case law or the research. And sometimes it can also help educate, for example, the Supreme Court we've been involved in in many cases relating to the to the Supreme Court. In particular, they seem to take cases in the education realm when the districts are split in how they are looking at an issue. For example, there was a case called Andrew with an E, F, and that came out of Colorado. and The Tenth w- Circuit. The Tenth Circuit, thank you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, it was over, you know, how much progress does a student really need to make in order to access what the Individuals with Disabilities Act or IDEA calls a free and appropriate public education or a FAPE? Do they just need to get some educational benefit or do they need to actually learn the challenging objectives and learn what other students who are in their same grade level are learning? And we sent in an amicus brief that said and asserted that it needs to be challenging and that if the student isn't making progress, then the districts need to do something about it. They need to reevaluate. They need to call in another expert. They need to look at the data. But they can't just keep passing a child from grade to grade or repeating the same IEP, Individualized Education Program, goals over and over with no progress. And that's the way the court saw it, too, in a unanimous decision. And that was a couple years ago. So that's an example, definitely, of the power of, of the amicus briefs, but also of the network of knowledgeable attorneys and experts who can really talk with each other and say, how should we approach this? What should we you know, let them know about and how can we get the best outcome. Which is one of the greatest resources attorneys who are representing families can have in COPA is that dialogue with other professionals who are quite good at what they're doing and arguing and advocating for and to have that ability to collaborate 
on how to move forward with our issues and advocating for our students in the federal courts. And, you know, the 10th Circuit, when, when you know, that decision uh, was that de minimis was enough, de minimis progress was enough for a student. And that's when the United States Supreme Court then accepted hearing because there was a split in the circuit because the Second Circuit says a reasonably calculated program so that a student is making meaningful progress, which was is the Second Circuit standard. And then you have the Tenth Circuit, for example, that said then de minimis. And what did that mean? And it seemed like a really low bar for our kids to really make progress and not regress. And then the Supreme Court in the Andrew F. case did say that it has to be progress in light of the child's circumstances. And how did you feel about that at COPA, the way the, the court worded that in, in light of us? I, I didn't know we were going to go down this path, by the right. way, but, <laughs> but I'm kind of excited to talk about it. And we'll talk about other things, but you described it as being successful. So, yes. so in light of the child's circumstances, and how are you interpreting that at COPA? The court used the same language and argument that COPA submitted in its brief. So we were overjoyed because it was the way we look at it. But we believe firmly that the language in the IDEA is clear about the fact that it's, you know, each child is unique. Each child is an individual. And although there are some benchmarks you can look at in terms of what other children at that age or at that grade level are expected to be learning, or perhaps sometimes what you may have learned from another student with the same diagnosis, such as autism or Down syndrome or ADHD, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. In the end, each student is a unique learner, and the services and supports that they receive should be based upon where they're at, what their present levels of performance are, and where their team sees them going in the next year. Which is the purpose of writing goals. Right. It's the whole purpose of and, and the, really the basis of the IDEA, that if that year goes by and those goals are not met, then again, the team should be looking at that, reassessing, doing something else and not just saying, oh, he didn't learn because you know he has a disability, so let's just do it for another five years and see where he's at there. I'm being sarcastic because a student has to have a new IEP each year to, you know. Well, that is what they are supposed to have. Right, that is what they're supposed to do. We both know that that doesn't always happen. Right. So, So, right. (laughs) Well, you know, I'm really glad we went down that path. But let's circle back to you a little bit, and why don't you give us a little bit of background and What led you to COPA? Well, I have been working to support individuals with disabilities since early 80s. Most of my career, I started off as a direct support professional with adults with disabilities. And I was getting my social work degree and became a social worker in some agencies that support adults. And I decided that that social work wasn't really for me. I wasn't all that uh, interested in, like, getting a master's or continuing. So at the same time that I wanted to go back to get my master's degree in applied behavioral science, I also got a position at the Kennedy Krieger Institute in Baltimore, which is a large children's hospital that focuses a lot on students with disabilities and their families. 
and they had just received a demonstration grant from the Administration on Developmental Disabilities on Positive Behavior Supports. So I started working for that project, and I went to Hopkins for my master's in applied behavioral science. And the interesting thing about that was that it was a generic, it wasn't an applied behavioral science for kids with disabilities. It was applied behavioral science for all of us (laughs) and really looking at in any situation, whether you're in a school or a workplace or in your own personal life, you know, what motivates people, what gets them, helps them, supports them to be successful, and how do you find that out? And so it was really exciting to me because it really, I could apply it directly to what I was doing to support students in the classroom and in their homes. And because we were a demonstration grant, we had like the caseload of 10 students and they were the students who had the most challenging behaviors. And so they were at risk of being either removed from school to go to a more segregated school or mental health facility or being removed from their family because the family couldn't handle their behaviors. So not surprisingly, if anyone supports or has a family member with autism, a lot of the students that I supported back then had autism as a diagnosis and really significant poking their eyes out, banging their heads, running around the school building, just a lot of significant behaviors. And because I had the ability to kind of sit back as an observer, in particularly in school, but also at home, and figure out exactly why that student was behaving that way and what might be either maintaining that behavior or contributing to it, I saw some amazing changes. One of the first students I worked with was a little boy in the fourth grade who had autism, and he spent most of his day, his parents really wanted him in his home elementary school, the one his brothers and sisters went to. But he spent most of the day running around the school looking for vertical blinds so he could run past them or flapping his hand in front of his face or sitting in a corner listening to books on Fast Forward, which the teachers were doing or allowing him to do, you know, keep him busy so he wouldn't be running all around the school. What I noticed when he was doing that is that he was actually on the right page. When he would stop the fast forward, he'd turn the page and then I'd hear it start again before it went to fast forward again. And that was his mode of listening. And we learned many other things about him. But by the time I finished consulting, not only had that entire elementary school learn some amazing things, but they knew that he could learn and that by the end he was participating in class, he was speaking verbally, he had friends, and he was making progress. Now, not everyone, (laughs) of course, follows that same path or is able to make progress, but it opened my mind and my eyes to the fact that kids with disabilities can achieve and they can do more than we ever usually know and sometimes give them credit for. Yeah. Well, I I love the conversation about applied behavioral science. And I guess if I'm hearing it correctly, you know, you're talking about what are the antecedents to the behavior maybe? Like why yeah, is the, 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 the yeah. student, is that is that part of it? That's certainly one of the terms that a purely behaviorist person would use, the antecedent, the behavior, the consequences, and the pattern of those and how that goes. But 
at the same time when I was on this demonstration grant, I got introduced to TASH, which is the used to be called the Association for the Severely Handicapped, but now just goes by TASH, and introduced to minds like Lou Brown, Ann Donnellan, Gary Lavinia, Herb Lubbock. Herb was, by the way, one of the first presidents, as was Anne of OTCOM, which is the Autism National Committee. And they were really encouraging people to move away from a strictly applied, you know, let's just look for the antecedent behavior consequence and use reinforcers and look at what was the big picture here? What kind of life was this child having? What did we want them to be able to do? And how could we do that in a positive manner? So they were among, you know, Lou Brown used to say at that time in the early 90s, pre means never. You know, we think of like preschool. Oh, everybody goes to preschool, then they get ready for school. And in the world of disabilities, they use things like pre-employment workshop. And he said, forget it. Nobody needs to be in that situation. Put them where they want to work and support them to do good and support them to make progress. And and Herb Lovett would say, you know, learn to listen to the whole student and everything they're communicating. And these were pretty cutting edge revolutionary things to be saying in the in the early 90s. And I was lucky to be in a situation where I was working would send me there. And I became a... Um, well, you got to be the listener. Yeah, I got to be the listener. I got to learn. And then I got to go home and teach others about it. And so I became a member of that organization. And then I was fortunate enough to become a staff person. And I started organizing the annual TASH conference and, you know, being able to learn from people like June Downing, who did a lot of work in, in literacy, and Paula Kluth, who is does a tremendous amount of work on how to really support students to learn the general ed curriculum in the classroom. And so I, you know, had a lot of access to them. And at the same time, I also began to learn from and benefit from the wisdom of legal experts like Judith Gran and Tom Gilhul and Barbara Ransom and Celine Almazan, who is now our legal director. So it was uh, the perfect opportunity to see how those, just like I saw earlier, how research informed practice, then I began to see the connection between advocating for your rights and and practice in, in the building and, and the role that families and their attorneys, at that time, there really weren't as many special education advocates. When I first started at COPA, how powerful the combination of, of those things could be. And the opportunity to lead COPA came up, and so I jumped at it, and I've been there 16 years. I'm so happy you're there. <laughs> and I want to echo your sentiments about Celine Almazan and uh, Judith Gran, really tireless advocates, brilliant legal minds for children, and have really benefited children and, and families across the country with their brain power and their commitment and generosity of spirit. I mean Absolutely. Both of those two professional I don't I don't know the other professional I may, but certainly Celine and Judith I do know and their generosity to always be a listening ear and a sounding board for issues among us practitioners in the trenches mm -hmm. is just, you know, has been an amazing resource 
to have, and I'm grateful to their generosity. And really, the COPA community, including yours, the generosity is great, and, and together we can really help so many more families and not just the individual families that we each deal with. Something that you were talking about earlier was community support, and can you speak to the community support that COPA offers, messages that you may have to parents who are experiencing a sense of loneliness in this world of special education? Yes, absolutely. We are here. And on the COPA website that I mentioned earlier, there's a directory. And it, up at the top, there's a link to that. So you can click on that and, and enter your state. And up will pop a listing some states more than others. I think in New York, there's 250-some members, one of the highest member states. And others, you know, there may only be a handful. But there's somebody that you can connect with. That And that, that person may be a, another parent or another family member. They may be an advocate who is there to help families and sometimes go to IEP meetings with you so that you're not sitting at the table with 20 school personnel and just you. And they are under the IDEA, had the designers had the foresight to put in there you know, that parents could bring somebody with them to those meetings who had knowledge of the child and of the issues that they're facing. So a lot of advocates go to IEP meetings with families and help them work on the goals and help them put into perspective what's reasonable to ask for or what to do if the school system keeps throwing a no. And of course, there are attorneys as well. If the family feels that after consulting with the attorney that moving on to due process, which is basically a hearing where both sides, and you can certainly explain that better than I, but in my layperson's terms, it's, you know, each side comes with their attorney and they present to an impartial hearing officer what the facts of the case are. And hopefully the hearing officer will listen and be able to make a decision. And of course, we're always on the students and the family side of the table. So we're hoping that they will then convince the school, order the school to provide the services or the placement that the student needs. You described that perfectly. There's nothing I need to jump in on on that. But to your point about bringing advocates to IEP meetings or 504 meetings mm -hmm. even. Yep. These meetings can be daunting for families. And I once heard that if we're going to look at a medical model and, and do a, a comparison, that when a patient is given a diagnosis by a doctor, they only hear 50% of what the doctor is telling them because they're under so much stress. Mm -hmm. And that stress is really interfering with their ability to really hear everything that's being said and process it. And that the recommendation is that you have somebody with you to go to the doctor to hear the diagnosis and, and what the treatment plan is going to be. Because yes. at, with two of you, you might get 100% of what was said. Similarly, I think it's really important for parents to also have that support because they may, well, first of all, their head may be spinning when they're in there. There's so much terminology that is perhaps not understood. 
it's intimidating because mm-hmm. you're in a room of people that you are professionals and you a parent may feel that they don't have that same level of knowledge and information and feel intimidated to ask questions or to question the decisions that are being made. And to have somebody in that room with you to help explain what's happening or ask those questions that an advocate may understand what the impact of the decision will be, whereas a parent may not. Absolutely. Yes. I couldn't have said it better. And and really, I think the other message I want to say to families is that if you don't yet have an advocate or an attorney, bring someone with you, bring a family member. Because in addition to the things that you mentioned, I know myself, I'd been in the position with one of my children where he was really causing a lot of turmoil in the school. He was running up and down the halls, banging doors, throwing things at teachers, you know, and it was mortifying. I felt like I should somehow be able to do something to stop him from doing that. And luckily, I was at a school that was supportive to me and to him and in the way that they intervened. But I hear from families all the time that sometimes the school reinforces that notion that it's the parent's fault and that they should be able to do something about it. And each child is unique. And there are things going on in that environment that are stressors to children. They've rarely, in all my years of doing this, I will say 99.9% of the time, something is happening in that environment that's triggering the child. And when you're sitting there mortified, you may not think of the questions that would help you figure that out. So bring someone with you, even if you don't know there's an issue, just from the beginning to be used to having another person to, you know, check things out with. But if things are really getting difficult with the school situation and you feel like your child is not getting what they need or you're not being listened to as a parent, then it may be time to uh, enlist some professional services. And there, well, you'll see if someone visits our directory, they'll see sometimes the advocates work at local agencies such as the ARC or family services, family and support services, Sometimes they're in private practice. Sometimes they work with an attorney. And the attorneys, similarly, sometimes some are in private practice. Some work at, work at the Public Interest Law Center. Some are family or juvenile attorneys, and they do some special education law or you know dealing with discipline issues or behavior issues. In addition, there should be options for each family to find a fit that meet their needs. And information about advocates or finding help, I know is on the COPA website. Yes. Oftentimes, I do get calls from parents who are looking for help in, a, in another state, so in other jurisdictions. So, for example, I practice law in New York and Connecticut. And sometimes I'll get a call and say, I know you're in New York and I'm in Michigan. And I'm just wondering, would you be able to help me? Because and I'll I will say I won't be able to do that. But go to the COPA website and they have a, a directory where you can find help in your state. And so I always reference COPA for help. 
Well, thank you. We appreciate that. And I know sometimes, too, you probably are able to just say the name of the person because you've connected with them through COPA. And we certainly get those kinds of calls as well and, and point people. So it's, a, as I said before, an amazing and a rich network of resources. Yeah, it is. Thank, really, thank goodness for COPA. Going back to that example you gave about behavior and the, the running around the school or whatever it may be, Behavior is information, isn't it? Absolutely. That is one of the things I've learned through my career is, again, often there's something going on, whether it's a challenging school subject or the student, so they may be unable to do the material, unwilling, uninterested, and it's far easier for some children to make jokes or turn the classroom upside down than it is for them to say, I need help. Right. So some children externalize their behavior and some internalize their behavior. Absolutely. And I think this is a good time to remind parents that, you know, trust their instincts when they see something or hear something wrong with their child to really explore it, that, you know, that sixth sense we have as parents really does exist and it really matters. Absolutely. What have you seen, Denise, that has maybe emerged more significantly since the COVID-19 pandemic? I think two things have emerged really significantly. One is the inequity of resources. It matters where you live. And a student who lives on one side of town may have far, far less than a student who lives a mile away or across the border in another state. And those inequities in our school systems and the resources that are available the class sizes, you mentioned that earlier when I was talking to you about some students needing a smaller setting and less students, and that's absolutely true. And some schools and districts have the resources to provide what students need. And those inequities came through loud and clear throughout COVID, not only in whether they had access to the internet or not, which we heard a lot about, or whether they had access to food or not, which we also heard a lot about throughout the uh, pandemic, but whether or not they had staff that were reaching out to families and asking them how the, the child was doing, providing them with additional supports. Some districts were going into the homes and providing one-on-one -on -one or, you know, just being so creative with their programming. And others were doing nothing and basically saying it's a pandemic and we're not having school and therefore we're doing nothing. We don't do pandemics. <laughs> we don't do pandemics, exactly. <laughs> so that's the second thing I think that was really brought out even more is that difference between states, districts, school buildings, personnel. It seems to be, although we have these robust laws that say you can't discriminate against a student because they have a disability, you need to provide them what they need to help them make progress and on and on. And particularly under the Individuals with Disabilities Act, it's pretty prescriptive about how you're supposed to be going about that. 
And the variance, again, between how states or districts follow, for instance, I, you know, New York, I know, has far more from some of our research, far more due process cases than most of the rest of the country. I think maybe more than anywhere in the country yeah. might be safe. I was being generous. Yes. And there's a couple reasons for that. One is that there are some districts that are, you know, not doing what they need to do. They're still not following aspects of the law on a routine basis. There's also, and certainly correct me if you think there's a different reason or something I'm missing, but what I've heard that contributes to it is that, you know, a lot of states will allow multi-year settlements. So let's say that the two teams go to due process, like we were talking about before with their attorneys, and the judge said this child really needs a smaller setting in a private school. A lot of states will, will allow them to do that for three years or, you know, make that agreement. And my understanding is that in New York, it has, it has to come back every year. And also there's seems to be a lack of hearing officers or a backup on hearings so that they're not happening in a timely manner. So, you know, some people laugh when they hear that we have a lot of attorneys as members and I say that we work really hard to try to avoid due process. And they say, well, why would you do that? I would think you'd want to go to court, you know. And in part, it's because sometimes those cases can last or take three years or longer. And in the life of a child, that's a long time. And our members want the child and the family to get results now, not to be waiting that long. And then I guess the last reason is because it's still a two-tier system within the state, whereas a lot of states, you go to hearing and then you go to federal court if there's a disagreement about the results. My understanding in New York, and know exactly how it works, but there's an intermediate step where you got to go to another hearing in the state of New York before you can move on to federal court. So those kinds of differences in COVID really came. We just had a myriad of students that were either receiving services, receiving schools, going back to school in hybrid situations, going back full time, not going back at all. I mean, it was just all over the place. It is all over the place. And you described the system here in New York very well. I would say a lot of the problems that we're experiencing in the parents' bar is the inefficiencies of an enormous school system. And perhaps they are also lacking resources in getting these cases across the finish line. I know the the people who work on the other side of me for the Department of Education, so many of them are working really, really hard to try to get this done. And oftentimes I think they are handcuffed in a way from getting as much done as they would like to. But there are inefficiencies, and it's inefficiencies, again, you're correct. We're having difficulty getting impartial hearing officers, and there's been a, a dearth of hearing officers available, and there's a queue to actually get an assignment where 
you know, under the law, we're supposed to have one within 72 hours of a filing of a due process complaint. And sometimes we're waiting six months or longer for the assignment of a judge just to be heard. That really is a setback to families and to, right, because kids kids can't wait. And if their program isn't being funded, they're going to lose out on an education. And that's been unfortunate. And yes, New York is one of the few states in the country. I know it used to be nine states. I'm not sure if it's still nine, but only very few in the country where we have this two-tier administrative process. So we have the impartial hearing process, and then we have the state review process. So it's almost like we have to pay the toll before we can get to federal court. And then we get to go to federal court and have our our case heard should the cases be appealed. And so that's interesting, you know, with respect to talking about the inequity with of resources. And I would say also the good part about New York is city is, and I tell families this, that sometimes I do think this is the mecca for special education because you have so many highly qualified professionals here and neuropsychologists who can make really, really spot on recommendations for kids and what they need educationally in order to learn and make progress in light of their circumstances. And also, we have so many excellent private schools that are designed for particular types of learning styles, whether it's for students with autism or for dyslexia or for twice exceptional. And that's unique here. And I know that when I have spoken at conferences in different parts of the country, I know that those resources aren't available to parents and trying to find the right solution. So as you know, in our due process complaints under the statute that was reauthorized in 2007, that we must include a proposed solution in our due process complaints. And I think that's a struggle for families in jurisdictions or wherever they may be living where the proposed solution isn't necessarily available to their child. Right, right. And I think that's the, you know, one of the things that we're struggling with, but also that having a network where you can learn from other states or districts or jurisdictions how they meet those challenges has been really beneficial to families and to practitioners because they can often raise their voice at the policy level and say, we need more funding. Or as you said, with the inequities and the inefficiencies in the system, we have to keep shining a light on that to not only emphasize the delay that it causes and the harm to the child because of that delay, but also that the resources that and the attention that, that should be being given to fix it. Because, you know, there are a little over 7 million children who are eligible under the IDEA and many hundreds of thousands more under Section 504 of the Rehab Act. And the ones that really, truly need to go to due process or struggle with that to that level with the system in a lot of ways are a very small number. And I don't know exactly what it is for each state, but I'm going to say something like less than 2%. Yeah, I was going to say about 1%. Yeah, 1%. Yeah, 
Um, and that's an uninformed opinion, yeah, by the way. Yeah, I was about to say 1%, and then I thought, well, I better say 2 because I'm not exactly yeah, sure. It just but feels <laughs> like 1%, but I we could yeah. both be off on that. And we can correct it and, and put it on my website, so yeah. not to worry about that. So looking to the future, Janice, what do you see as the future for COPA? Mm-hmm. And if you had, you know, magical powers, what would be the one thing that you would ask maybe our federal government to do on behalf of our kids? Absolutely. I'm, I think we're at an interesting time, kind of nexus that might allow, I'm hopeful that it will allow the magic wand to work because there is and has been a lot of resources from the federal government in the stimulus bills down to schools because of COVID that uh, have given them, sometimes through the year 2024, resources at a level they've never seen before. And so I, I am very hopeful that we're able to take those resources and transform, learn, you know, our districts and our jurisdictions to reinvent or redesign schools so that they're really, everyone it should be a positive place for every student. It should be a place where teachers have the resources and the supports that they need because they are often very overwhelmed, very understaffed. Here in New York City, they buy their own supplies sometimes. Right. We're a wealthy country, and we, the IDEA should be funded at a much higher level than it's ever been in its history. The influx of money right now should help to make up some of those, but we cannot use it for just one-time fixes. We have to really look at things like class sizes, like some of the evidence-based approaches that work, like co-teaching, where we have a special education teacher and a general education teacher working together, where we are able to provide assessments and evaluations on a more consistent or meaningful level. And if the family, they have the ability under the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act to request an outside evaluation, what's called an IEE, an independent education evaluation, those are often, as you said, especially if in your around and now the telemedicine is really taken off. So you can get evaluations that provide so much information about that unique individual child. And so why aren't we making sure that every child has one of those and that it's informing their individualized program in a way that helps them progress? And I would also hope, I mean, far too many students, especially if you happen to be of color or a student of dis- with disabilities, or if you happen to be both, then you are three to four times more likely than any other student to be pushed out of school, to be expelled, to be have harsh disciplines such as the use of restraint where large staff hold you down until you calm down in, in a school building or seclusion where they actually lock you into a room until you've calmed down. And sometimes they do that on a regular basis. We've had students who, you know, have been secluded 900 times in a year, which is, you know, how could they possibly be learning anything if they're not in their seat? 
So COPA is very actively working on that issue, on passing federal legislation to eliminate seclusion in our schools. We just do not believe there's any reason to lock a child alone in a room in a school building. That, you know, if they need services and supports to help manage their challenging behaviors or to help them regain control, that's what should be occurring. So we're working on that, and we're also working on partnering with other organizations, uh, such as Dr. Ross Green, who's done a lot of work around students whose behaviors are challenging. He has an organization now called Lives in the Balance, so we're partnering with him, trying to reach more education. We've called For example, the two biggest teacher unions, the AFT and the NEA, and he's offering them to do training to provide his resources for free for teachers and to really, you know, hopefully help educate people about another way. We we know how to, to support students in a better and more positive, nurturing way. And so... If my magic wand works, I hope we make some more progress in doing that. Well, I hope your magic wand does work, (laughs) Denise. The work that you're doing and everybody at COPA is so needed and necessary for our community. And thank you so much for what you do and for coming and sharing all of this with us today. Well, thank you. And right back at you because you are one of the resources that families call and uh, help you help them get what their child needs. And that's a lifeline for many families. Well, thank you. Thanks again. I hope you come back and visit us again and give us some updates on the policy work that COPA is doing. Great. Great. Thanks. Thanks for listening. Be sure to tune into our next episode. And please don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite streaming platform. And leave us a review. We love hearing from you. 